comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. This is the PKD Black Box, episode 65. Welcome back to the PKD Black Box. I'm your host, Sean Pryor. This episode that you're about to listen to is a special conversation between myself and Jamal Eigel. Normally, I have that nice, you know, fancy formal setup uh, to introduce this, the guest of the episode. But this one, as soon as we started our Skype conversation, we just took off and and we just kept going and kept running. You know, I really hope you enjoy this uh, podcast. We go all in. Jamal was a very wonderful guest, wonderful person to talk to. You know, I consider him family. He's a really great guy hell of an artist um, i wish him the best of luck on his upcoming series the ray with a jimmy with a jimmy palmiotti and justin gray uh, when that comes out that's got my vote of confidence you know i hope that you all enjoy this conversation like i said it's free-flowing as soon as as soon as we get to it it just goes and also before we get started i want to give a shout out to my homie donnie salvo co-host of the pkd black box and um, also host of the tales from the attic podcast his latest episode episode 30 where he does a retelling of X-Cop number one, Bad Guy Earth, is officially the most downloaded Tales from the Attic episode of all time. A lot of X-Cops fans came out to listen to it. We had a lot of new listeners listen to that episode, and they start going back and listening to old Tales from the Attic episodes and PKD Black Box episodes and Carol Chronicles episodes. So to all new listeners, welcome and thank you, and we hope that you continue to enjoy the podcast that we deliver to you here on the HHWLOD Podcast Network. And to all, to all the listeners, to all, all the listeners and fans of the show, as always, we are very thankful for all the love and support and emails and, and stuff that you give. And um, sometime in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have a, uh, another feedback episode where we uh, you know, shout out some emails and uh, answer some questions from listeners and fans of the show. So um, be on the lookout for that. But until then, enough of my rambling. Let's get to our feature presentation. Thanks for uh, coming on the show, man. I, oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I, I, I wanted to do this for a long time. Yeah, same here, man. Same here. Like, I was like, you know, it's time to bring Jamal on the show. I done, I done <laughs> took too long. I done took too long. Man, I had so many people at shows asking me, when you bringing Jamal on? When you bringing Jamal uh, on? I'm like, it's coming, I swear. Like, man, you lying. I heard him on the, all these other shows. Why ain't, why ain't he on your show? <laughs> uh, I was at a show, uh, Derby City Comic Con, mm-hmm. and this one brother came up to me, and he was like, Arsenio, when you putting Jamal on? <laughs> he called you Arsenio? <laughs> yes, he was like, Arsenio, when you putting Jamal on? <laughs> I was like, it's like that? He was like, yes, it's like that. I was, he started laughing. I was like, it's soon, brother, soon. I promise, soon. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I deal with, man. 
Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I'm starting to feel like the Tony Randall of podcasting. Like, like I've got to be on everybody's show at some point. <laughs> and like, if there's something that we can't talk about, you just gotta let me know. Like, I saw on the internet you and uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and and Justin Gray are doing the Ray. Oh yeah, we can talk about we can that. Talk about that now. Okay, we okay. Can. We we will talk about that because like if you know, I was like excited. I was like, oh, I saw that cover. I was like, that's dope. Oh, I got a, I got hype. Well, see, have we talked? Uh, had we talked last week, then I wouldn't have been able to talk about it. But then I saw the I saw it up on Friday. Uh, not Friday. I saw it, didn't see it until Saturday. I was like, oh, they announced it finally. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> I've been hold- no, because I've been holding on to this since May. Damn. You know, so this has been like the hardest, like four or five months, you know, especially when I was in San Diego. Yeah. It's like, I'm doing all this stuff. They just gave me an award and I can't talk about what I'm working on. So <laughs> I understand. It's all like, you know, double secret hush hush up at DC these days. So I see what they're trying to do. I get it. It's just the way it's been packaged, delivered and sold. Right is a problem well i mean i can understand that uh here, here's my here's my take am i 100 percent happy with everything that's being done no but something had to be done right is sales wise something had to be done now on the flip side i'm coming into this because everything is done on such a need-to-know basis i'm coming into this just like everybody else i don't know what's going on mm-hmm. unless you know it's somebody like i knew kind of what was going on with Nightwing and with Batman because I'm friends with Scott Snyder. Yeah. And we talked about it a little bit in San Diego. But I, like, most of the stuff that came out, I had no idea what was going on and I didn't know, like, I hadn't seen any artwork. So I came into it just as pleased, actually, with a lot of stuff because everybody's bringing their A game. Yeah. Everybody's stepping up to the plate. So from a creative standpoint, it's great to see that. It's great to be involved. It's hard not to get excited about it, you know, working on this stuff. You know, I'm such an art fiend that for me, like for me, and we can talk about this later. Okay. Um, for me, comics are, it's the synergy of writing and art. The two have to fit together. If one doesn't fit with the other, it takes me out of the story completely. So I found myself critiquing like little anatomy problems and stuff like that. And I shouldn't do that because there's other books that I don't do that with that I just am able to accept. Like Hawk and Dove. I have fun with Hawk and Dove. Right. You know, and, and you know, I, and I want to talk about that too. All right, I, we 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 got to we we definitely got to talk about that. Uh-huh. All right, no problem. But but what? But you know, I go into it knowing what Rob Liefeld is capable of doing as an artist, and I am I appreciate it for what it is. But with Stormwatch, with like Miguel Sepulveda, not a bad artist, right? But there were some real like things that were just very jarring that just sort of took me out of the reading experience mm-hmm. but i don't have that problem I, I think what it is is that for me like i believe that symmetry should drive art that there should be a sameness to the artwork there should be a consistency to the artwork and that's what it was as i was looking at someone who is not a realistic artist trying to draw realistically 
and it took me out of the experience. Whereas opposed to somebody like Pat Gleason or Rob Liefeld or Francis Manipal, who are more cartoony artists, but there is a believability. It's the same kind of believability that like Humberto Ramos has or Michael Ringo had, where everything looks the way it's supposed to look in their world. They have found that voice within themselves. It, it, it took me and, a long time to get used to Ramos. Yeah, it, it took me a long time too. It took, and I'll be honest, it took me a long time to get used to Liefeld as well. Yeah. I have had a recent, like really recent, between Hawk and Dove and the Infinite, like a really recent sort of like re-examination of Rob's work. And it's the same kind of re-examination that I had a few years ago when it came to Jack Kirby. Because I didn't like Jack Kirby growing up. Right. I didn't understand Jack Kirby. But now I look at Kirby's work. Not only do I look at Kirby's work post-Marvel, but I've had a chance to look at a lot of Kirby's work before he got to Marvel. And you can see the evolution of Kirby because Kirby as he was as everybody knows him and loves him was a man who was already 20 30 years into his career he had already pared down in his style to those elements that he thought worked the best I'm in the same boat as you when it came to Kirby because right. as a kid I got it I got it but I you know I was like oh this is all right you know but when when I was growing up it was John Byrne. It right, was, it, was right. Mark, it was Mark Bright. It was Dave. Right. It was Dave Cockrum. Oh yeah. It was those cats plus the underrated cats like Bob Hall, who I got to meet at Derby City Comic Con this year, mm-hmm. and he autographed my first issue of West Coast Avengers, the limited series issue. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I was, you know, I, <laughs> Bob Hall, man, that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. <laughs> it was like I was like eleven all over again and I was trying to keep my composure and be very professional but I said you know what I was like you don't understand the number of times I read this book and I read this limited series I said I had to buy and this is the absolute truth over the span of three years I had to buy four number one issues of that limited series (laughs) because I read it that much and I knew what happened panel in panel out right but it's like and I and I knew it wouldn't change I mean like I look on the front cover I was like ooh Rom could join the team I knew he wasn't going to join the team but I still can't <laughs> read it anyway oh no I'm the same way I have gone through at least 10 copies of The Killing Joke I either keep losing it or they got so dog-eared that they fell apart or what have you. But I, you know, there's certain things that you always end up coming back to. I always end up coming back like every couple of years or so. I will purge my collection just because I don't have the space and I really, really don't have the patience to keep a lot of comic books around. Yeah. But I will always end up buying or rebuying copies of stuff that I loved. Killing Joke is a good ex- uh, is a good example. Watchmen, you know, I've had multiple copies of Watchmen. I <laughs> I'm looking at my my upteenth copy of uh, Dave Gibbons' Steve Rude's World Finest miniseries collection. <laughs> you know, multiple copies of old issues in Nexus. You know, just just you know, Dave Steve. I've got everything that Dave Stevens related that IDW has put out. And I've got actually I've not only do I have the the hardcover, the print size hardcover of the the Rocketeer collection that they did, the first one. Yeah. The, the small one. Then I went and spent seventy five dollars on the deluxe edition. Oh my goodness. <laughs> then I spent another hundred dollars on the artist edition. Mm. <laughs> mm. 
<laughs> and, then, and then I San Diego. I bought the sketches and draw. I bought uh, sketches and drawing. The, the 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 sketchbook, the hardcover one that just came out that they put out in San Diego, and I made sure that I was going to pick up my copy in San Diego. <laughs> that was like the only thing that I cared about while I was out there. It's like, ooh, I gotta get over to the IDW booth. <laughs> See, and and I, and, I, and I was also like that with Crisis on Infinite Earths. I had the limited series, and I remember I had to. And this was around the time when I got it. It had already been out for right. a, for for over a year, but I literally had to piecemeal it together, going from comic shop to comic shop in my hometown, <laughs> and, and also with my uh, my mother driving me out to Cincin to to like Greater Cincinnati to get the other issues. So like I would like issue one would be a direct market version, issue two would be a grocery store version, you know, and so forth and so <laughs> forth. But I didn't care. I just right. I wanted those books, and like I read them over and over again. And I remember because once again, a lot of those issues got dog-eared too. And I eventually had to give them up. I got rid of them. But right. I, then I got the uh, trade paperback of Crisis, and then as a uh, gift, Donnie Donnie Salvo. The first time, right. like we we, rec- we had been recording like podcasts for a good while, and we. Uh, he said, you know, I told him I was going to be at Pittsburgh Comic Con. This was a couple years ago. He was like, you know what? I'll fly down to Pittsburgh and we'll hang out. I said, okay, cool. So we hung out all weekend. He found the absolute edition Ooh. of Crisis on Infinite Earths. <laughs> it's, the, uh. it's one of the prettiest books ever. Ever. R- the colors are so rich and Perez and Perez's pencils are just so beautiful. Oh, well, you can't. I mean, honestly, Crisis is one of those things that you just cannot go wrong with that series. I will tell you, I stumbled. There was a stoop sale in, in my neighborhood a couple of months, like like back in July. And, you know, Corinne and I were just walking by and, you know, people, you know, there's, you know, it's Park Slope. You know, people have stoop sales every weekend. And, you know, there's a lot of comic, you know, there's like two different comic shops and in like walking distance around here. So you get a lot of, there's a lot of comic book people around here too. So I'm walking by a stoop sale and I look down in the box and something just tells me to stop. <laughs> and I stop and I look and I start flipping through and then I see crisis number one uncanny x-men 200 <laughs> and i'm like whoa what are so i walked out of i walked away from the stoop set i spent like 50 cents a copy for for these books and walked away with a stack of crisis one seven eleven and twelve the first part of Days of Future Past, the first appearance of Kitty Pride, just, <laughs> just like this mat, like all of these like marquee books, like the stuff that we covet, like the yeah. stuff that we're constantly going back to, and I'm just like, this is, and I'm like, this is what, this is comics. Yeah. How many times do you get that kind of opportunity to to look at this stuff, and with, especially with something like Crisis, because you not only got you know, Paris on pencils, but you got brilliant color. You got Jerry Ordway doing some of the inks. It's yeah. just, it's a beautiful looking package. Oh yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And like the, and the one great thing about Crisis is that it uses, you know, it uses Perez to the fullest, and it like it ben- that book benefits him so well. Oh, absolutely. Because absolutely. once it's right in his wheelhouse. Oh yeah, because one thing he loves doing is drawing shit tons of characters. <laughs> 
And as a child and even as an adult, I can sit there and say, oh, who's that? Who's that? Oh, I remember that dude. Oh, I got to go back. I got to go find my who's who and find out, you know, and check this out. See, it's because of crisis. It's all because of crisis and George Perez that I became hooked on DC Comics as a kid and or, you know, in, in, in my early teens. And that made me respect who's who. And if it wasn't for who's who... You know, I wouldn't know these characters. And also, at the same time, I wouldn't know who some of these artists are. Right. And that's where, like, that whole thing going back to Kirby. Because one of my first issues of Who's Who dealt with the Forever People. Right. And, right. I, and I see these crazy cats in this, like, bugged out buggy. And I'm like, <laughs> what the hell is this? And it's like, this is the Forever People. And... <laughs> And I look, I'm like, Jack Kirby. I'm like, oh, that's that. I'm like, and when I was, you know, you're 11, right. 12 years old, oh, that's that old dude. And then a couple of years later, you start to notice things. It all kind of clicks. And I've said right. this a number of times on this show, watching the Centurions, one of my favorite old school cartoons is on Boomerang. Yeah. And I see the names Jack Kirby, Gil Kane. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you've got to be shitting me. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the the big one for me, especially, was I was a big fan of Thundar the Barbarian. Yes. And when I found out that Kirby did the character designs for Thundar, I was just like, are you? No. No, no, it couldn't be the same. But then, like, your older eyes start to realize, like, oh, shit, that is Thundar. That is Kirby. Yep. That's like Commandy all grown up. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no <laughs> doubt, no no doubt, man. And there's like a little bit of Alex Toth in there too. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You look at the the but with Toth, like for me, with for me and Toth, like as far as animation goes, you look at Space Ghost, you look at his designs for the Galaxy Trio, you look at oh god, like all the like oh, just too much, man. Yeah, <laughs> on, on the real, on the real, I bought. And I got this for like five bucks off of Amazon. It was the Dino Mutt and Scooby Doo Hour DVD box set. <laughs> and uh, and you no, know, for real, this is. <laughs> I wanted it for two episodes of Dino Mutt because Blue Falcon was my homeboy. And, right. and I say it once, I'll say it again. Warner Brothers and DC Comics is missing out because they could create an exclusive digital line of all these old school Hanna-Barbera properties and introduce them to a new generation. I, I'm telling you, it could work, but that's another story for another day. Right. But there is there was a, uh, a documentary on the creation of Dino Mutt and Blue Falcon and... They cut to screen caps of Alex Toth concept artwork for Blue Falcon, and it was so cold. If I could, if I could have got a Blue Falcon Dino Mutt comic book by Alex Toth, <laughs> it would have been one of the most beautiful things ever. You know, like oh, yeah. Birdman, all that stuff. These cats did so much for the comics industry and the animation industry, and people just don't recognize that. But I, I kind of ran into the same thing when I moved out to Los Angeles. Is a lot of the guys that I ended up working with were all ex comic book guys. So you know that, that crossover is still there to this day. Mm. I didn't know you worked in Los Angeles for a while. Yeah, yeah, I, I worked at Sony Animation for four months. I, I did a uh, storyboards. I was a journeyman storyboard artist, as they call it, on uh, 
I did a Starship Troopers, the Starship, the Roughnecks cartoon. Yeah. I did that, and I did a, two episodes in Max Steel. Really now? Yeah. Max Steel, yeah. boy, that is taking me back. Uh, t- <laughs> tell me about it. <laughs> wow. That, between Max Steel and those two Action Man animated series. Oh, God. I forgot about Action Man. Yeah, remember, because they had, they had a, like a standard anima- animated series, and then they had that kind of somewhat CGI type an- animated series for Action Man. Yeah. Wow. You done took it back. Well, you know the big secret about uh, behind, there was a secret behind Max Steel that mo- like a lot of people don't know is that Max Steel was actually originally supposed to be a revival of Big Jim. Really? Yes, so Max Steel's father is Big Jim McGrath. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> that is that is old school right there. That is old school. Holy crap, Big Jim. Yep. Mm. I'm so, co- so I would get these model sheets because I would get these model sheets and they had Big Jim stamped on it. I'm like, Big Jim? No, it couldn't be. The, are you serious? And then the director's like, yeah, we, it was originally supposed to be they wanted to do a new line of Big Jim action figures, and but they decided to go go younger. So that's where like the whole extreme sports angle came in. Wow. So, so they made Max uh, Big, Big Jim's son. That but I think they only mention it once in the series, like, or they mention it once by name. Actually, in one of the episodes that I did, they they mention uh, Max's father was, was was at least called Big Jim. <laughs> I just remember from Big Jim. There's only one thing I remember because, like, that was out. That came out a couple years before I was born. But I remember <laughs> some relatives having toys. Yeah, and there were two toys that I remember: Captain Drake. <laughs> and because like he had like the skeleton mask and the hoodie yeah and he had the pirate pants and no shirt <laughs> and then like uh there was this <sighs> other character called the whip and the whip was part of um big oh, jim's crew and, yeah. I, and i swear because it was a mattel box and it was a red box and i swear it was jack kirby concept art on the front of it i wouldn't you know what i wouldn't be surprised i haven't seen that you know, that stuff in a long long time but then again you know i used to collect like eric son of thunder they there was a while when they were doing this was like pre-he-man wait a minute hold on doing, hold on you ain't you ain't about to take it to eric though you ain't yes, about to I take am. it there yes i am yes i am yes um, <laughs> Sorry, baby. I'm, I've I've been told I'm speaking too loud. Oh, sorry. sorry. My bad. My bad. I'm getting I'm getting you in trouble. <laughs> Bring it down. So, oh no, it's it's me. Once I get uh, you know, I once I get on a roll, I I I preach. I prophesy. <laughs> I rant. I rave. I get loud. Oh, it's, all right. <laughs> it's all right because see, I remember those Eric Son of Thunder action figures. Because, oh see, man, that's when like cats used to advertise in comic books. That's right. For these that's toys. right. They had Eric, and then they had a uh, uh, Warlord. War- yep, uh, Karate Kid. Karate Kid. Get that Karate Kid action set? No, I didn't get the Karate Kid. I couldn't afford the Karate Kid action set. Oh, no. I Neither could I. <laughs> what are you talking about? Hey, I asked for I asked for a G.I. Joe Sky Striker. That was, my, that was my toy money for like the year. Oh, I remember one Christmas my mom got me a, a, a Cobra Rattler. Mm-hmm. That was like the big, big gift. Was the, was the Cobra Rattler, and my mom got me one, and my best friend Junior, his mom got him one, and 
to this day, I am such so inept when it comes to putting things together, like physically, like mechanically, that I broke the front landing gear oh. <laughs> while I was trying to put this damn thing together. Oh, my. <laughs> I was such a dope when it comes to stuff like that. <laughs> uh, don't feel bad. Don't feel bad because I had, um, I had the shark. Mm-hmm. Uh, the G.I. Joe shark, and it came with Deep Six, and my mom bought it for me. Right. And, because, like, you know, I came from a divorced home, and, like, I, I, I could have waited, like, two two days, and my dad was going to pick me up, and he would help me put it together, but I said, no, I can do it. I can, I can put it together myself. I put together other things. I could put this together. But for some reason, because it was, a, it was like a floating uh, vehicle, I could not put it together right, and I, I thought I put it together right, and I put deep seeks in it, and I put it in the bathtub, and that bitch just sank right to the ground. <laughs> oh, it was so salty. Oh. <laughs> and the thing is, is you can't take them apart and put it back together again to figure out what you did wrong the first time. Exactly. Because once you put it together, them bitches is stuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, Mom is sank. She was like, well, that's your own fault, ain't it? <laughs> I was like, yes, mom, you're right. She was like, so ne- oh. next time you're going to wait for your dad, right? And I was like, yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Sometimes I have to catch myself saying, well, you know, well, back then, back then, but it's not, we don't have that competition when it comes to these toys nowadays. Right. You know, it's, it's all changed. Like, you know, like you said, you had Eric, He-Man, Warlord. For like two minutes, you had Sun Man. Um, right. Oh, no. Oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> yes, I did. Oh. Yeah, you remember Sun Man. Yeah, of course I, Sun, I'm from Flatbush. Of course I remember Sun Man. Okay. <laughs> Because you know every black family had that one of course that made sure that your house had that Sunman. I had Sunman and Lando. That was the only Star Wars figure that I was allowed to have was Lando Calrissian. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I can't even get Darth Vader. I, I, was, I was lucky my mom let me get Snake Eyes because I was able to talk her into the fence. It's like, look, Ma, he's black. <laughs> 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 See, I remember like my first Joe was Stalker, and then I got Snake Eyes next, followed by like the motorcycle and like the uh, oh. and the and the cannon. Boy, I tell you, but it was just there was just so much competition in the toy market, and this is true, and this is true. But you don't have that. Uh, but they were all driven by the shows at the time, and if you think about the shows at the time, you know it was all like as far as like TV cartoons, like. You know, hey, you don't really have an afternoon block, like a solid afternoon block of action adventure shows the way that you used to back in the 80s. Sure don't. So you don't have that that opportunity, you know, for for advertising to, you know, impressionable young men like us, (laughs) you know, because, you know, I was I was. You know, twelve in nineteen eighty four. So, so I, I was ripe. I was ripe. Yes. No. I, feel, I, 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 I. No. I feel you because not only that, not only was it influenced by uh, you know 
um, afternoon cartoons and morning cartoons. This is true. This um, is true. It was also comics had a lot to do with it too, because yeah. like perfect example, another toy line within the realm of He Man that did not get a cartoon, but it did get a comic book, a Fortune limited series from DC, Power Lords. That's right. That's right. Oh God, my friend. Again, going back to my buddy Junior. Junior had. Uh, was it Max Power? Was the character's name? I think his name was Max Power. I think. If, I, if yeah, I, I think. Right. I, it, you know, it, it, it sounds cheesy enough to be an action figure, that action figure name. But yeah, like he had the he had the the power loose. Like his his mom actually worked for a toy warehouse, so she was always bringing home like prototypes and you know and like ran, random action figures and stuff. Like he had like the the. Was it the Wheeled Warriors? Oh, Jason, like, the Wheeled uh, Warriors. Yeah, yes. he had like the Wheeled Warriors stuff like six months before they hit the streets. Oh, and the character, um, according to uh, according to Wikipedia, uh, take mm-hmm. it for what it's worth, uh, right. Lord Adam Power was the leader of the Power Lords. Lord Adam Power. All, all, all I remember about Lord Adam Power is you pushed a button on his back and you look, you look like they ripped his skin off. Yes. <laughs> It was like because it, it was like a two sided action figure. Yes, it was. Yes, and, it was. and I remember as a kid, I saw the ad in the comic book, and I was like, "This is kind of jokey." I mean, uh, concept wise, it made sense, and in the comic book, it was cool because I actually still have those comics. But right. but as far as like the toy itself, I'm like, this just looks bad. Well, I was into all of that stuff. I was into like the power uh, power lords and the centurions and the the. Wheeled Warriors, I like any of that stuff that came out. Air Raiders. Oh, I remember uh, Air Raiders. Yes. Oh, Air Raiders I, and, and and its rival Sky Commanders. That's right. Oh, Sky Command. Oh my God, Sky Commanders. I remember Sky Commanders. Sky Commanders had that bomb ass cartoon too that nobody watched but me. There, there was, there was one, there was one, one that I loved. And the Insectors. You remember oh, the Insectors? Sectors? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Or was it Sectors? Uh, sectors. It was called Sectors. sectors. Yes. Sectors. Right. And they had, yeah, they had the 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 insect pu- like you had the action figure, and then you had like the puppet yep. insect that it rode on. Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I had for like the longest time, and I wish I still had the VHS tape. Ruby mm-hmm. Spears made five episodes, and um, they aired it like on a Monday through Friday block for like one week. And it was just in conjunction to sell the toy. And See, but you don't, they don't do that anymore. Nope. They don't do that kind of stuff. They did the same thing with uh, Chuck Norris and his Karate Commandos. You damn straight. They did, they did one miniseries, like at one, because fi- that's, that's how G.I. Joe got on the air. You know, G.I. Joe, I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but, you know, but the, the, when I saw that first G.I. Joe miniseries, my little mind was Alone. Yeah. Are yes. you kidding? I was just like, are you kidding me? G.I. Joe. Because <laughs> I was already reading the comic book. So I was like, there's a G.I. Joe cartoon. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. No, but that was like an event, though. Think about it. Oh. Think about it. That was an event because that aired. And I don't know how it aired for you, but for me, that mm-hmm. aired at 8 p.m., for like X amount of consecutive days and it right. was on um before Fox had their own affiliates before mm. they had their own local affiliates it was like on that channel right and so like I'm sitting here watching WXIX based out of Cincinnati and it was and normally it would be like the movie of the night and you know some old Charles Bronson movie but instead it was G.I. Joe for like X, X amount of straight nights and I'm watching this and I'm seeing people shooting guns I'm seeing like Duke <laughs> 
punching folks. I'm like, and I never saw a cartoon where like somebody got punched unless right. it was the old, old, old Marvel cartoons. Well, I, well, I like to call the original motion comics. Right. See, y'all ain't fooling me with this motion comic shit. I saw that back then. Okay, it ain't changed. But um. You know, but people was getting punched in the face, and like you had this diverse team. Stalker actually got some play in the series. He uh, had he had the jetpack. All oh, that shit was dope as hell. See, we didn't. It didn't come on at night. It was they, it was WPIX. It was right in the afternoon because they had an afternoon block of cartoons every every weekday afternoon from two to five p.m. Mm-hmm. And it came on at three exactly three o'clock. Yes, for five days straight, and we sat there glued <laughs> every day. And it did its job. It made you want to go out and buy every fucking G.I. Joe action figure that you could find yep. and that you could afford. And I remember, and they were expensive for the time because they were four bucks a pop. Yeah, they were. Yes, they, they were. They were, they were $4 a piece. They were for three ninety nine. I remember this very, very clearly because there used to be a, I used to live, live uh, a few blocks over from Church Avenue in, in Flatbush. The church, the church in East 17th, and there used to be a, a Hallmark store that sold toys, and they had the, they had the G.I. Joe figures, but the only they had every other figure except for Snake Eyes. Snake Eyes was constantly sold out. Mm. As soon as that cartoon came on the air, you could not find a G.I. Joe figure to save your life anywhere. No. So, and you don't have like as far as i know you don't have anything that's got that kind of momentum anymore like i remember when i was in high school uh i think it was either freshman or sophomore year when the teenage mutant ninja turtles cartoon debuted it came it came on thanksgiving vacation week for five days same thing five days and i was going to the high school of art and design at the time so when everybody came back to school all they talked about was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yep. So you don't have, like, there's nothing that I have seen that has had that kind of momentum. The only thing I've seen is Ben 10. You know, probably, I, I, would, I would say, yeah, you know what, but Ben 10 is, but I think Ben 10 didn't have that kind of, the same kind of push oh, no, no, that no, those no, other no. shows had. No, no, I no, think no. what Ben 10 really prospered from was having longevity and a good story yeah yeah and a lot of that was due to Dwayne mcduffie handling that that a series bible this is true this is very very true if it wasn't for if it wasn't for that i don't think that show would would be as far as it is right now you know no, but you, but you got a comp you got the combination you got the, the you know you've got you know guys like you know joe casey and joe kelly and you know duncan rulo and and steve siegel you know the man of action guys spearheading this stuff but then they also did one of the smartest moves that i think that you could have done they went and got dave johnson to do all the concept design that's a good yeah, good point very good because <laughs> that dude can lay it down exactly he can exactly. lay it down and see See, but that's the thing. Like they went in and they they did it, and not only that, but then they came out with Generator Rex. They got Ben right. Ten toys. They got Generator Rex toys. Exactly. Exactly. And see, when I see that, that like gives me hope that we can still have original created material. 
You, you know what I mean? Like it, it gives me that it gives me that hope, whether it be in comic books, whether it be in cartoons. Look, I love the old school stuff just as much as the next person. I'm still down to see new things. And so when oh, I know I agree. And so I agree. when I see a Ben Ten, that makes me happy. When I see a generator Rex, that makes me happy. I know like a lot of people I know personally hate on the new Voltron cartoon, but I like it for the simple fact that it actually did something that it actually did something that like the old cartoon kind of old cartoon didn't do. And it's doing something that a lot of old cartoons would try to do and would do poorly. And that's introduce younger characters into a team environment. Right. Because sometimes, like, because you know, we all know the cartoons of the 70s and the 80s, if they were, like, I, I, as I like to call them, the Wendy and Marvins. <laughs> Worst fucking concepts ever for any cartoon. Because you know, like I know, we were not concerned with them. We no. only wanted to see our heroes right. in action. Because the only thing they would do is just get in trouble. <laughs> they were just a plot device. Oh, hey, you know, how can Wendy and Marvin get in trouble so the super friends can stop eating ice cream and go save the day? You know, just stuff like that. I hated that. I always did. I, I, I used to call it the, the Slimer problem. <laughs> the Slimer. Yeah, no, Slimer. Sli- no, Slimer wasn't a problem until the second season of the real Ghostbusters. And then he began to dominate every storyline you know that that but when you're when you're working in that kind of environment especially with a, an established property like that and then i mean it's it's the fonzie thing you know fonzie wasn't supposed to be the lead character he was supposed to be an ancillary guy next thing you know you know henry winkler's the star of, the, of happy days i mean that's that's just what happens i mean you know it's the same thing what's the uh the the character from Big Bang Theory. I know you're talking about um, yeah the, the the one who says bazinga all yeah, the time yeah uh, but it's the same it's the same thing. He just won his second Emmy. What can you he he just won his second Emmy? Wow for for playing that part. Nothing against him. I'm sure I've seen a couple of episodes. He's very funny, but I'm pretty sure nobody expected his character to uh, Sheldon. That's the name of the character, Sheldon. I don't think anybody expected Sheldon Cooper be, to become you know the linchpin of the Big Bang Theory. Yes. Oh yeah, it's it's like Urkel. Urkel yeah, exactly. Urkel, oh. Urkel wasn't supposed to be the the, the key the, the key focal point of Family Matters. Family Matters was was supposed to be that was ABC's. original Bell Johnson the Johnson you know, property. That was supposed yeah. to, he was he was the star. <laughs> and then Urkel just you know Urkel blew up. Urk saved ABC. People are like Full House. Oh, that that's what said. No, 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 no. <laughs> them big ass glasses and them suspenders saved ABC. Contrary to popular belief. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. You just you never know how things are going to take off. You, this is true. You you never know. I want to go back to GI Joe, and the okay. reason why I want to go back to GI Joe is because that is where I first remember seeing your name in comics. Ah. Uh. Okay. G.I. Joe, issue number eight from Image Comics, uh, Image slash Devil's Due, um, right. in 2000, it was a July 2002 issue. I had bought a couple issues, and I kept buying them, because I, I, mean, I, I liked it. It wasn't, it wasn't a bad series, but I remember I would get some that had the Zek covers, and right. I saw issue eight, 
and it was like a part three or four. It's called like Reckonings or something like that. And, the, right, and right, it was right. a Zek cover and it had Storm Shadow. And I was like, oh, I got to buy it. Storm Shadow. It's a ninja. I got to buy this. And then I opened up the book, Pencilers, uh, Jamal Eigel, and I think the other guy was uh, Steve Kurth. Steve Kurth, yeah. And I'm like flipping through the pages, and I see two of my favorite Joes, Iceberg and Tripwire. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I'm in love with Joe again. <laughs> I got Iceberg. And I automatically was like that little kid again play, playing with his Iceberg action figure and snow job. Yeah. And that's when that's where I first saw your name in a comic putting in work. Years later, you know, I you know I'll go through see 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 your other material, you know, Supergirl, other stuff like New Warriors, uh, Venture. You know, you did an issue of Green Lantern that I, I that I remember reading. Right. Um, you know, Noble Causes. You know, Teen Titans. Mm-hmm. All this stuff. Meeting you face to face. You know, years later, and um, and I was real nervous because like we because I think we 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 finally met also I think at Pittsburgh. I think so. Yeah, yeah I it think was, that was the first time. Yeah, yeah, because that was also the same time I first met Donnie face to face too. Mm-hmm. And so I was just like, okay, I'm gonna go meet this brother. I'm gonna go talk to him. I'm gonna shake his hand. I'm gonna be professional because I'm selling these comic books. I ain't gonna be a <laughs> fanboy. I was like, I got to put in work. I gotta, you know, I gotta man up. I gotta do this. <laughs> and so when you meet some of these cats in the game, you never know what you're gonna get. Right. You you never truly know what you're going to get. And like I I and I have to say like the first thing that caught my eye is that like you know just like the way you carry yourself, the way you handle yourself. That's always the first thing I look for in anybody that I meet. How do they carry themselves and how do and how do they present themselves to people? Regardless of like how, you know, regardless of what's going on around them, you know, how do they present themselves and like use a true pro. And I learned something from that. It's like, okay, this is how I need, I need to, like, you know, understand I have to carry myself a certain way when I'm at these shows. I have to present myself a certain way when I'm at these shows to make sure that people understand that, yeah, I have my fun, but when it comes down to business, I can do business. Right. And, you know, and that was something that I learned from you. Uh, <laughs> I, well, I, thanks. I, well, you, you know, honestly, I, I think that just, that's just something that I sort of, just kind of carry over from from just all aspects of my life um uh, i you know i spent you know like you i'm i'm a child of divorce you know raised by a single mom living in flatbush you know i i spent a good portion of my life being told that i couldn't do the things that I wanted to do whether it was you know, creative as an artist or as an actor or whatever, and not from a you know from a standpoint of people trying to put you down, but you know you're living you know in that kind of area, you know it was I mean it wasn't you know it wasn't like the pro it wasn't the projects or anything, but it, it certainly was a you know depressed part of New York City. Right. Um, it's changed a lot. Gentrification does wonderful things, <laughs> but you know, at the time, you know, I'm, you know, I, I was a kid. My mom worked double shifts at the hospital. You know, she was still trying to go to college. She was raising, at the time, two kids, and I really, you know, you know, a lot of the way that I carry myself, I get from her because my mother is probably one of the most dignified women that you will ever meet you know and again it's a sort of, sort of like you were saying sort of, she's she's able to have her fun but you know this is a woman who was she married young she had you know she had me when she was 17 
She was divorced by the time she was 21. She was, you know, raising two children by herself. And she went back to school. She got her degree. She's working on her PhD right now. You know, she she got her master's. She's been a college professor. She, you know, she's a manager with the visiting nurse service. You know, um, so yeah. So I I carry a lot of her in me, no matter you know where I go. I I comport myself as a professional because that is you know what I am. Right. You know, it, at the end of the day, I'm as much of a fan as anybody else, but. You know, when I go to a convention, I am there to do business. Whether it is to meet to meet and uh, talk to fans, which is fun, but there's a certain I don't know. There's kind of like there's a certain limit that you kind of have to have because you can't always open yourself up to absolutely everybody who comes up to you, and you can't always forget yourself in those situations as well. Mm-hmm. You know. The last thing I want to be is, is you know, a footnote on Bleeding Cool. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, I always try to keep in mind that, yeah, you know, you're, you're having fun and you're here and you're, you're having a good time with the crowds and with your, with your other pros and, and everything. But this, it, this is part of the job and it is important that, you know, you remember that. I, I'm done preaching. No, 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 no. You're good. You're good, man. It, it, it's, it's just one of those things where, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've been to shows and I've seen artists do this where, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and an artist or professional, comics professionals, whether they be writers, editors, whatever, they'll have their booth and sometimes they have to be away to do a panel, which, you know, which right. is cool. Or they have to go get something to eat because, you know, got to eat. You know, you got to eat, get you some water or whatever. But sometimes they'll just be late. Right. And to me, that's like, and for me, like, that's one of the worst things that could ever happen is being late to your table and having people, you know, wait for, you know, having to wait for you and stuff like that. And and like, for me, my reason I never wanted to be late to my table is because I look at it as one of two ways. Brothers would get it bad enough for being on CP time as is. So... See, I wasn't going to go there, but... No, no, no. It's all right. No, it's all right, because I'm going to put it out there. You know, we, we get enough flack for, quote-unquote, CP time, and I'm like, I got to be at my table on time. And then, two, from a business standpoint, I'm like, okay, if I'm not here on time, that could be one, two, three, four, five possible sales that I missed right? because Absolutely. I'm not at my table. And, you know, and it has nothing to do with, like, you know, popularity and, and anything like that. It's not about that. It's just that... I need to be there because I either paid for a table or or whoever I'm representing, whether it be Action Lab or PKD Media or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, if they got the table and I have to be there to represent, I have to make sure I'm right there. This is true. This is true. But you have I mean, I think one of the things that gets lost in all the, the fan fervor is that these are trade shows. And I was actually having this conversation with a friend of mine today because, you know, she's getting involved in, in a deal. And I, I can't go into details, but it's, you know, connected to the connected to convention, uh, the conventions and to, you know, online marketing and, you know, stuff related to the industry. But, you know, one of the things that we were talking about is, you know, a convention presence. And I think, you know, people forget that these are trade shows. We're, our, our job, essentially, while we're there, is to sell the product. Now, whether that product is yourself mm-hmm. as a creator, 
or is the or the book that you're working on or the company that you're working for you you still reflect you know the that property that whatever it is that you are there to represent whatever it is that you are you know trying to sell to the public you you are there to represent that and you should be you know, showing yourself in the best possible light. Now, does that mean that you got to wear a suit and tie to a convention? I've done it. I've, I stopped doing it because it's a, it's a, takes five pounds out of the <laughs> luggage. <laughs> we, we're in a weird business. It, it's a weird business from a from the standpoint that we have probably one of the closest relationships with the our consumers that you could possibly have in any form of entertainment i agree you would not have this level of access with any living actor no matter you know how you know how like big their their star is you just don't you don't get to hang out after hours at a bar with brad pitt you know what i'm saying you know it's that's just not going to happen and at least not without like a a thousand photographers trying to get his picture trying to provoke him into doing something (laughs) so because we have that level of of intimacy in the industry i think people forget that this is still you know business business trips that we're making you know we're there to sell a product right i just like i said i can't stress enough to people it's just like just make sure that like you're at your table to me it's like i don't care who you are i don't care how popular you are right you know i don't care if you think it's a trendy thing to do it's just like yo just be at your table you know yeah. you know just try to be there. And like, you know, like i said if you need to step away for lunch go step away for lunch do your thing eat your food because you do mm-hmm. you do need some some peace time this is true. You this need trust. Trust me. With some of these shows, you need some peace time. <laughs> but you know. But yeah, just represent. Re- yeah, represent. absolutely. Because you always want people coming back. Well, that's the thing. Is my my attitude is, and I'm I'm kind of lucky that I I've gotten into the position where more often than not, the, the convention promoters are are paying for me to go to a show. And especially in, in that situation, if somebody is praying for me to go to a convention or a show or something, I am I am theirs. I am the, you know I will sit down and I will be at that table all day, every day for as long as you need me. And that's just you know that's part of the that's part of the deal. And even when you know I go to a convention and I pay the freight myself, it's the same thing. I am there to be there. I am not there to, you know, go, sm- well, I don't smoke, but, you know, to go smoke in the hallway and, you know, pick on girls in Sailor Moon outfits. <laughs> <laughs> but I was never that guy anyway, so. <laughs> Let's, let's get to this conversation about as far as what makes for a great comic book. And this is cause it's kind of like a twofold thing because like, this will like lead into our talk about like the new Hawk and Dove book mm-hmm. and, and, and life and a little bit of life felt as far as just from an art standpoint, right? Uh, from an artistic standpoint. But in your, in your opinion, what makes for a great comic book? Well, I mean, there's a lot of different things. I think for me, the first thing is always characterization. 
I think that if you can make the characters convincing, then that characters drive the plot more often than not. You can if you go plot first and then try to shoehorn a certain character into it, it doesn't really work for me as a creative person, as a, either as a writer or as an artist, especially as a writer. I think that if you write a story, it shouldn't be pu- a plug-and-play kind of situation. If I write a Batman story, it should only work with Batman in that role. It should not work if you decide, oh, well, I'm just going to put Captain America. I wrote this story for Batman, but I can't sell it as a Batman story. Let's make it a Captain America story. That doesn't work. No. That doesn't work. Captain America is a different type of human being. He's a different type of character. You know, and it's vice versa. You can't have, you know, Batman doing a Captain America story because it just does not make sense for the character. And if you do if you go from from that point of view of character driving the story, then that, I think that is what makes a comic book work you know more often than not then you you can get into like the nuts and bolts of like artwork but art is so subjective that i i try not to to judge based on the style i can only judge on on whether it's not it works for me visually but i try not to judge other people's styles too much yeah yeah, I, I can understand that, and I and I'm starting to get that way too. And I'm just trying to respect the process of the comic being made as, right. as a whole. And as long as the story entertains me, I'm good. But there are some times where I can't help but criticize the art. Right, and, right, right. And but but then at the, at, at the same time, it's like I don't want to make it seem like I'm ar- armchair quarterbacking because it's almost to the point. It's kind of like with athletes. It's you know, we have a lot of people, we all do, we watch a football game and like mm-hmm. we get mad at these athletes when they don't do their job. And then sometimes when you see an, when you see a, when you see a story and you read it and the story is incredible, but the art doesn't live up to the expectation of the actual right. story. Right. And you're just like, you know, why is that? You know, why is this art like this? Am I the only person that feels this way about this? And it's like, and it's not a, <laughs> and it's not a knock on the artist. That's just what the artist was capable of. Right, right, but, right. But it's like, does didn't anybody else see this but me? No, I, I think usually other people see it too. But there, there are so many, and you know this from you know both PKD and from Action Lab. Sometimes you end up in a situation where you just have to work with what you have. Yes. You, you have to work with the time frame that you have. You have to work with the talent that you have available. A lot of times when you get so-so artwork, and I'm, you know, I've done it too. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, I did uh, Superman 713. And I had seven days to do 10 pages of of pencils for Superman 713. And I was just trucking, trying to do the best possible job that I could within the time frame that I had. Because the thing about Superman 713 and 714 is they took place in real locations. 713 took place in Portland, 714 took place in uh, Seattle. So I was doing what I could to make it feel like those actual cities. And you were under like a massive deadline too. Exactly, exactly. So sometimes you just do, like I did uh, an, uh, an issue of Countdown like an entire issue of countdown in like 11 days. What? Just two, 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 two. <laughs> I, 
<laughs> but that's that's the job. That's what happens sometimes. You don't always get the opportunity to do your best work, and you you try. At least I I try to be as forgiving as I can, and the the, the fan of me tries to be as forgiving as I can in those situations when I see it from other people's work. But and, and I know it can be disappointing to me when I see something from someone whose work that I like or that I respect, and they either had the rush or they had you know they couldn't do the entire issue. And you know I do feel that that sense of of disappointment as well because. I'm either not getting their best work for whatever reason, or I'm not getting a full story from them, and it, that takes me out of the story as well. But I try not to fault them for it because it's just it's the it's the nature of the business, particularly if you're doing monthly comics. So I and again, you know, this goes back to the same thing. I try not to be too judgmental. It's hard though because I'm an art snob. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't mean you don't mean to be. It's just that. No, I, I don't mean to be. I, I don't mean to be at all. But I I I became an art snob very early on because you know when I really started getting into comic books was the same time it was the same year, it was, you know, nineteen eighty six. So, you know, Killing Joke was out. Ronin had already been out. Watchmen was coming out. Dark Knight was coming out. You know, Byrne was on Superman. Perez was on Wonder Woman a year later. I mean, you know, you had Steve Root on Nexus. You had Rocketeer Adventure Magazine coming out. You had all this great indie indie comics with beautiful artwork. And, you know, you had Jerry Ordway and John Byrne doing Fantastic Four. And just, you know, you had Chris Warner you know running around doing stuff on like alien legion and you know larry stroman and just you know i'm spoiled i'm absolutely spoiled i am a child of that era yeah no i know how you feel because when and during that era i read a bunch of captain america mike zek books mm-hmm. and then when it went to paul neary <laughs> and then the thing is it's not a you got salty didn't oh, you oh i was pissed <laughs> I was pissed off. And the thing is, now that I'm older, I respect right. Paul Neary for his contributions to, you know, to comic sequential artwork. I respect right. it. But you but you took me from Mike Zek to Paul Neary and like the styles contrast because right. one thing Mike Zek could deliver is action, stature, and and he and he and also great covers. Right. But but he, you know, for me, he was the cap artist because right. they, were, they were like, well, you know, besides the you know the Jack Kirby stuff and then the Frank Springer issues, a couple of Frank Springer issues I remember reading as a kid, and um, for a small period of time, John Byrne when he did some cap with uh, Ruben with Joe Rubenstein, right, right, you know, right. Those issues I remember too, but that was during that era where if Byrne did a book as a kid, I bought it. Right. Because I wanted to look at that artwork. Didn't matter if the story was jukey, you know. <laughs> hey, Cap is fighting a vampire. Here comes 85-year-old uh, Union Jack. <laughs> no, come on now. <laughs> I think I still got that issue somewhere. Cause but, it, it, but it worked, didn't it? Yeah, you know. It, 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 <laughs> yeah, he fought Baron Blood, and I bought it. Or, like, he would fight... Not the Red Ghost, but as a character that looked like the Red Ghost, and he had all these robots that looked like Marvel superheroes, but they didn't have the faces, and they had robot faces. Machine, Machine Smith. Yes. Yes. And I'm like, oh, that looks kind of dope. I'll buy it. Oh. Uh. You know, but but that's the thing. You just dealt with it. But those, but that Zek run of Captain America, beautiful. 
absolutely beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. And when Zach, there have been two, three times in my life where I have actually actively collected the Punisher. As one was when Mike Zach was right, was uh, the artist on it. That was the whole thing we had that that whole generation of artists and then we got to this next generation where we had the, the jim lees the rob liefelds and like all these cats right and and actually this leads to like the next thing as far as art goes with rob liefeld i know right. we've all made the jokes you know we've all made the jokes about 90s comics and and like the feet and all and all that other stuff but right i'll i'll be the first to admit i've seen the images for the new Hawk and Dove, I'm cool with it. Right. I'm just talking about just from an art aspect. Right. I have no I have no beef with like with Liefeld now. None. It's just like I, I the Liefeld from back then and the Liefeld from now to me are two different people because it, like this Liefeld can finish books. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It, it, it's preface this by saying that. When Rob was, when I first saw Rob's work, it was on a cover of Marvel Comics Presents. And the first thing that popped, and this is senior year of high school, so this is like 89, 90. Mm-hmm. And I saw, I saw that cover and I said, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> this is bullshit. <laughs> Who the fuck? Rob Liefeld, who the fuck is Rob Liefeld, and why does he suck? <laughs> and 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 I and I hated, I hated everything. I hated Young Blood. I hated everything that came out of Extreme Studios. I I could not understand for the life of me how he got a so popular and B was making because you know. You know, working in a comic shop, you you hear the stories about how much, you know, fucking money these guys were making back then. Jesus yeah. Christ. A lot of these cats was making mad paper. Oh, are you kidding? Are you paper. kidding me? I mean, you know, when you've got a, a comic book artist making a million dollars for an issue. Yeah. Holy shit. Well, I mean. The, in- <laughs> the industry would pray for moments like that again oh and we're still i mean we're starting to get a little taste of it with the new you know dc 52 but it's not on that level no not no, even no, close no. to being that level no no we're not even close to getting back to to like bob layton valiant days <laughs> where he was handing out checks to sean chen and was like yo you might want to hold on to that for a minute because we about to fall you know <laughs> you know we're not even at that level right now I said it. Yes, I, <laughs> I said it. There we go. Oh man! But, um, but no, but, yeah, but no. Go, go, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. To get back to, but to get back to, to the Rob Liefeld, to Mister Liefeld, and again, like you say, we all made the jokes. We, you know, but there became a certain point, and this wasn't even recent. This was maybe I would say maybe six years ago, where I I, I came across a website. And it had the forty worst Rob Liefeld joke or drawings, forty worst Rob Liefeld drawings of all time. And and then there was another site where they were like taking stuff, comparing like stuff that he had either like swiped at the time or was you know 
used you know or you know homaged or or whatever and you know just like a litany of images i mean they weren't just doing it to li- uh, to life they were doing it to a lot of people and i'm looking at all this stuff and i'm going you know what this is tired yeah. this is this is old the man is still he's still viable he's got a huge fan base obviously they 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 like him for a reason you know i may not like it but you know they they like him for a reason and i just made the conscious decision within myself that i was not going to bag on him anymore because it it's done it's tired it's it's old there's no reason uh, no reason to do it then recently I had picked up an issue of Deadpool Corpse, and I'm flipping through it, and the thing that struck me was, you know what? This isn't half bad. I mean, it's it's still, it's you know, it still has its areas, but on the whole, it's dynamic, it's exciting, you know, it, it's got a lot of energy to it, and he looks like he's having fun with it. And then I picked up the Infinite, the first issue, the first two issues of the Infinite recently. And it's the same thing. It's like, wow, you know what? This is all him. This is, he's having fun. You know, there's a energy, like the, the characters are leaping off of his page. Is this the way that I would tell a story? No. But I've, I've gained a new appreciation for Rob as an artist. You know, I respect him as an artist. I respect his swagger because he's been doing this longer than I have. I've been, I've been in this business almost 20 years. You know, he's been in this business, you know, 25 plus and he's still a viable creator. You know, people still like, if you go to a convention, there are are lines for the man. I mean, Jason, Jason Wood over on 11 o'clock, like, worships the ground he walks on artistically so and i have a lot of respect for jason as a a comic book fan and as a friend so i think that you know sort of helped me kind of take a look at rob's work from a different angle and and it's sort of not just rob but i'm trying to in general like and this, this is just sort of like i'm trying to Artistically, I'm trying to broaden my horizons and not be as dismissive of what other comic book artists do creatively because it doesn't match, you know, the vision that I have for my own work. My what the vision I have for my own work is a separate vision right. than the vision that they have for their for their work. So I need to, you know, and this is what I, I said to myself: I need to approach their work with open eyes and appreciate their work for what they do and the process that they go through you know because you can you know because you can learn something from everybody you know oh, no, and that's that, cool. that that's basically you know where where I'm coming from but that's more of an offshoot honestly of just sort of something that I a conclusion that I've come to from my life in general which is that I reject cynicism I, I reject the idea because because we're right now culturally our default seems to be to be cynical. Yes, our default seems to be to to assume that everyone is out to get you and everything that you know or believe is wrong automatically from Jump Street. We don't trust our teachers. We don't trust policemen. We don't trust our politicians. We don't trust anybody 
we we automatically assume that everybody has an ulterior motive and i reject that idea i don't want to be a part of that anymore right. i don't want to be a part of that as a person i don't want to to have that influence my decisions or have that influence my thinking or have that influence my daughter or or my relationship with my wife so i am actively rejecting cynicism i'm actively actively trying to keep those cynical ideas out of my day-to-day thinking and i give you props for that because we you know like you said it we live in a world where it's just it's like that now and to me right. and it's in especially heavy and prevalent in media as far as right. comics movies and television Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's, that was the thing that really sort of set me off in the first place, was that the idea that everything that seems to be coming, coming out is, is dark. And if it isn't dark, it's deemed a failure if it doesn't do well right. successfully. So what was it? It was the, um, the, the Green Lantern movie. Whether you liked it or hated it, they did it, and they tried to have fun, uh, have fun with it. But it was the story that I saw afterwards, after I guess like the first week or two of returns came in, and it wasn't doing that well financially. Where they were still saying, "Well, you know, we are going to do a sequel, but you know, we're going to make it darker." You know, or, and I was just like, "Wow, where does yeah, where that come where from? does that come from?" Right. But and the thing was, like, I I just couldn't fathom how you would make it darker and make that palatable for like for me as a parent right it's see but it all goes back to warner brothers and hollywood's thinking of okay when we did a superhero movie that worked it was the dark night and it was dark so it sold so we have to do everything like that they didn't and see right. and warner brothers did this a couple of years ago um when well like or last year they were thinking about making shazam dark and i'm like it's shazam right. come on now it's shazam you know that, that's 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 a, that's a very 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 good point. I think of of all the the movies that have come out recently, I think the one that sort of went against that grain and did well was Captain America. Right. If I were directing Captain America, it would probably be even more of a sort of uh, you know George C. Scott kind of old school John Wayne rah rah. Like, like the way uh, Paul Verhoeven directed Starship Troopers, the, the Starship Troopers movie. Where, I mean, Starship Troopers is essentially a John Wayne movie. If you if you really look at how propaganda that they, that they placed in it and oh, how yeah, a lot of how, propaganda it was filmed, how it was filmed, it's essentially an old school sort of World War Two into the trenches boy kind of, uh, kind of movie. And that's how Verhoeven tried to make it play off. And but the the, the issue with that was. He tried to play that off, but it didn't translate all the way through. No, no. But I, I think he, he, I think the mistake that he probably made was he was coming into it from a a sort of cynical kind of, kind of bent, rather than sort of embracing it wholeheartedly the way that Joe Johnston did with Captain America. I can like see Joe. That. You know, Joe Johnston basically took the Indiana Jones movies as a template and used that for Captain America.
with the whole you know cynicism and and with the whole cynicism and art thing going back to Liefeld there was a period of time where I just couldn't stand his art either and right when during the whole Heroes Reborn Heroes Reborn era that's when like I kind of got back in the comics again because I was going in out in out in out right. through through the 90s and then Heroes Reborn came and I got back in I'm like okay there's this new Avengers team it's it's Liefeld and they're in this pocket universe okay what the hell is going on and I'm and I'm reading it and I'm like no no I, I, I just I didn't feel it I just looked at the art and I'm like no I'm not feeling this right right and so well, no, I, I can understand that but at the same time but you were gonna say I'm sorry no 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 no, no. It, it's just one of those things I and I wasn't feeling that from him but that's what the industry wanted because Marvel right. was like you know look we need we need to come back we you know we need that boost so you know do this and he gave it to him and I wasn't feeling it you know, not because I wasn't feeling that style. And, right. you know, but then, like I said, years later, I look at this new Hawk and Dove and I'm going like, I'm cool with this. I'm fine with that. You know, that, you know, and like he, and he put out these Deadpool core books on time and mm. this other stuff out on time. Like I give him props for that because I'm like, but that era where he was doing the Heroes Reborn and then after he left Marvel and did that Fighting American stuff. And I'm like, no, I'm, I just I'm like that really soured me on him big time. So it took a long time for me to I have like I said I I have I have an appreciation of him and like art wise I have an art appreciation of him now, but I I definitely did not back then, and like in the whole cynicism thing I let that go. Yeah, that that's good. That that is actually good. Yeah. Uh, you know because like i said man like it's just like it's so easy to be cynical it's so easy to be you know snarky to, to me it's it's a cop-out now i just really feel it's a cop-out more than anything else like it, it, we joke like on the podcast we make jokes all the time we make jokes mm-hmm. all, we make jokes all the time and it's never to like you know hurt folks feelings or anything like that right because you know, it's all right to joke it's all it's all right to joke but like the whole snark shit to me that's easy it's just too it's too easy and you get nothing from it. No, ex- exactly. And you're you're attacking. In a lot of cases, you're attacking people that you've never met, you don't know personally. You know, you, you know, and it's, you think you're being funny or clever when you're being neither. Right. And you know, and just and it just does nothing for the business. You know, it does nothing for the business. It does nothing for the artistic medium. And we just end up at this point where people look at comics and they look at the comic business and they just like shake their heads at it. Right. Well, I mean, part of the problem is, is we've become so insular over, uh, over the decades. For me personally, I, I, I feel like making comic books a collector's medium is what has led to our eventual downfall. For the most part, I think that we became once we took it off the newsstands, which was necessary at the time for its survival. But now we're at a point where we're fighting for for not relevancy. I don't want to use the word relevancy because I think comic books are very relevant, just not in the United States. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I I, you know, I travel to Europe all the time, and the the European com- comics market is huge. I mean, it's not as big as it probably was, you know, maybe twenty years ago, but it's still much larger than what we're doing here in a, in a lot of respects. And I th- I think that 
once we we became a a specialized niche market we we started sort of choking ourselves yeah 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 you know? and i i i'm living for the day where you know we're no longer that that niche market anymore i started to get concerned a few years like i say about probably like 4 or 5 years ago when it felt like that the bigger publishers were literally just catering to 250,000 fans. Right. And, I, and there, there's no growth from that. No, there isn't. There, I, I would like to believe that what DC is attempting to do right now is a, is a, it really is a positive step in the right direction for long-term go, growth if they keep up with it. Right. Like it's great that they have the initial like commercials like you know you had a, a DC New Fifty Two commercial on during Doctor Who, like the week before last. It's great that they're doing that. They need to keep doing that. Yeah, and seeing they that- need to keep to keep having that outreach. They need to keep. I mean, yes, they they send you know you know stories to like new you know USA Today and to the Washington Post and you know to whatever they need to step up those efforts right and the thing is warner brothers has that money to do that this is true so and and the thing is is that them doing these commercials like i looked i looked at it like financially in the back of my head in a way it's it's more of a financial risk for them to do these commercials as opposed to like 20 20 plus years ago when right. there were more comic book stores, because we uh, we'll, we'll take it back to the day where Hasbro will get with Marvel and say, "Hey, um, we got to make sure that uh, we get uh, at least a GI Joe comic commercial every couple of months." So mm. um, when you saw that GI Joe comic book commercial, your oh, ass yeah. went to the grocery store or went to the comic book store, and you got that GI Joe comic. Oh yes, you did. You yes, know, you, but this goes back to what we were talking about before. Is that you know. They had those those outlets yes. back then, back in the eighties. You know, they they were doing that kind of stuff. They were having a, that cross promotion. Thank you, George Lucas, because you started it. Yeah. But uh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And the thing is, all that like just like died off, and it it died off. And the thing is, is that it it just like stopped. It didn't die off gradually. It just stopped. Well, it's it stopped because of the direct market because the direct market became a bigger influence on the industry than, you know, trying to reach uh, a mass audience, you know, trying to make comics into a niche item really has done more harm than good. Because we need readers. Yes, we do. We We need readers. And like like I said, many years ago, I don't give a damn what you read as long as you're reading some comics. Well, no. The, here's the thing: is the readers are out there. There are people out there who, 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 if you show them a good comic book, will read them, and will buy more if you show them that there's good material out there. You know what? Let's move it out of the depressing. Okay. Out, out, <laughs> let's let's move it out of the uh, uh, depressing stuff, and let's get let's get back on on some fun stuff. All right. Recently, uh, Donnie Salvo, who does tales the tales from the attic podcast, on episode twenty nine, he told the tale of uh, Zatanna issue fifteen. Uh. <laughs> now, now, yes, 
no 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 it was no because like you know donnie will talk we'll talk about these books in his own special way and right. um the one thing he brought up and after i looked at the comic and i agree with him 100 percent is that the way the action was delivered in the book and there's minimal dialogue in that book so right. you, you have to give a lot of you have to give a lot of action and there's no thought bubbles instead there's captions that was great that, oh, thank you. You know that was great. It's it's kind of like I always always say like if if I can remove the captions from from a comic book and like just read and just like read it just for the art and if it can tell the story without the dialogue captions or whatever, the artist has done a fantastic job. And with that, you did a fantastic job. Um, it's one of those things where, like, sometimes when, when like Donnie does tell us from the attic, yeah, we're doing he, he does it for fun and he's making jokes. I, but he, I know, you know, I know. But he, you know, he wasn't making jokes about the art per se. He was making, you know, but he was just telling you the story, telling you the story. Although he did make a, a funny joke about magic Harry Potter and Harry Potter having yeah. a, having a gat. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's um, no, but like I think that's something that like a lot of a lot of artists like today's artists may not understand is being able to sell action within a panel. And right. that's something that you've always been, that you've been able to do. And we've and I've seen it like from, you know, Supergirl, you know, Superman family books that you've done just your progress and growth as an artist from like the, from like the early stages up until, you know, today, as far as like um, influences, like you know, what are some, and we and we talked about some of them, like you know the Toths, and like we talked about artists like Kirby Toth, right, and all these other cats. But what other artists or people influence your art? Oh God, uh, well, honestly, like the range is so wide that it, it it's it really is it's hard. It it really is because it comes from so many different different mediums, not just from comics itself, like. As far as comics can, are concerned, like I always, when you know, whenever this question comes up, I always say the same thing, which is true. Is I, I start with what I consider to be my holy, my my holy comics trinity, which are Brian Ball and Dave Stevens and Steve Rude. You know, those were the guys that I immediately fell in love with when I was 15 years old, going through the back issue bins at Forbidden Planet. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a lifelong comic book reader. So, you know, just like everybody everybody else, you know, who wanted to draw comics, you know, I was aping Byrne for a long time. I was aping, you know, Arthur Adams for a long time, like trying to, to get a little bit of whatever it was that they were doing that just entranced me as a reader. And, you know, I, I fell in love with Paul Smith and John Romita Jr. when they were on the X-Men. Yes. Same thing with Mark Silvestri when he was on X-Men. Um, I loved Mark Silvestri's X-Men run. I'd never seen anybody bring that level of naturalism, not even like, Smith, because Smith has a very cartoony bent to his work, and the same thing with Romita Jr. I'd never seen the level of naturalism that Mark Silvestri brought to the X-Men up until that point. I, 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 feel, you, I feel you on that, and I did not recognize Mark Silvestri as a kid. I didn't really recognize it until, once again, I got older. Right. But I remember as a kid, one issue of X-Men that stood out for me that like my like emotions as far as reading the book have changed over the years but it was the issue where cyclops finally came home 
mm-hmm. and he was going to battle Storm, who had no powers, in right. the Danger Room, and whoever won <laughs> would lead the X Men. I had X X Men two hundred one. I've got that issue, and and I remember, I remember as a kid being salty because Cyclops lost because I thought Cyclops was cool. But then I got older and I went back and I read those old you know, older issues of X Men. Right. I'm like, this motherfucker is a whiny ass bitch. Yes, he. Is. I'm like, you know, you keep whining and you keep finding these trifling ass women with these uh. issues. And I'm like, yo, I, I can't deal with you, man. Cyclops back in the day was a complete pussy. <laughs> no, he was. He was. Like, Cyclops was the most po- probably still is, actually, to me, he is one of the most powerful X-Men. And I like what they've done with him for the most part. But now they're just making him a dick. Yeah. For the sake of making him a dick. Like, he was a dick before, but he was a dick because he was being led around by his dick. <laughs> <laughs> and he he was a whiny little pussy. And, you know, it's like, how are you going to let the, you know, Wolverine comes in, like, Cyclops fought off Hank for Gene, fought off Warren for Gene. Wolverine rolls up and he's just like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm <laughs> Gene. What what stay away from my girl. <laughs> that, <laughs> and I was just like, even as a kid, like I didn't know what a bitch was, but I I recognized yeah. it when I saw it. Yes, exactly. I'm like, man, and see, like, and I didn't, and like, I didn't pay attention to that either until I got older, and like, right. I just remember I, I went back. It was like three years ago, and I just started looking through some of these older issues at a friend's house. I was like, and I just said it. I was like, man, this dude is bitch made. <laughs> and I was like, I, I can't, I can't deal with this dude, man. I was like, let me, uh. and and then seeing, but that made, but now I respect. That X-Men team of of Storm, Colossus, Kitty Pride, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, and Rogue. I, oh. I respect that team so much now. Oh yeah. I loved Rogue when she when I loved that era of the X-Men. Mm-hmm. And I loved Rogue on that team. Like Rogue now, not as interesting. Rogue then was just mm. Because to, to, to my twelve year old eyes, it's just like, oh, baby. <laughs> <laughs> because back then, that X Men book, they were the not ready for prime time players of comics. E- exactly. That, but that's the thing. Like back then, with the X Men, like they've tried to replicate that feeling, but it, it. I don't think they've replicated it as well with the recent X Men books. Like the thing, you know, with the X Men back then, they were pers- They were honestly persecuted there weren't like a hundred thousand mutants running or even like millions of mutants i mean i know there's like only what 194 or you know 193 or whatever you know the, the whatever the number is the current you know tally is of you know not dead x-men but back then you know you had you know it felt like the the way that that uh Chris Claremont was writing the book. You felt the weight of that burden of being, you know, persecuted. Yep. You know, especially when he, they did a God Loves Man Kills. Whew. You know, I mean, that was absolutely brilliant. You know, mm-hmm. you know, there, I mean, there's a certain point where, where Chris sort of, you know, fell off the rails. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> but you know, he had the 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 time, and he. I think he wrote X Men for like fifteen years, didn't he? Yeah, he wrote it for. A, I I just know he wrote it for a long time. It, yeah, I think he was on the X Men for at least fifteen years. That, I don't even put like a date. Like if you yeah, if, if, if you go check like you know like the yearly stats for Chris Claremont, if it say years writing X Men, it just says long ass time. <laughs> That's all it says. Long ass time. There's no like year dates or anything like that. Just he's been around. <laughs> You know, and, and, so, so, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> as, as getting back to, I mean, like, like the stuff that influences me. I for a long time, I, I mean, you know, in terms of like comic book artists, I mean, there's so many guys. I mean, you know, uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Alan Davis, uh, Katsuhiro Ultimo, Masume Shiro. Uh, you know, I mean, even guys like contemporary guys. Like, I love Olivier Coipel. I love Pat Gleason. I, I love uh, Daniel Acuna. I, you know, there's 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 so many good comics. Jerry Ordway is one of my heroes. Um, there's just so much good talent out there right now and you know and then you know you get into the stuff like the film stuff that i'm influenced by i'm influenced by peck and paw and i'm influenced by howard hawks and i'm influenced even a little bit by you know by spielberg and you know or in animation you know like old school like not even like japanese animation but like old school like galaxy rangers and bionic six You did, yeah. you did not just say Galaxy Rangers. You did not just say Galaxy Rangers because that yes, was that was my shit. You know Jerry Orbach did a voice on that show. He did. I didn't know that. Yes, yes, he did one of the voices of the Galaxy Rangers on that on that show. Oh, <laughs> I done brought Law and Order up into this piece. <laughs> the, the late Jerry Orbach uh, yes. did did, vo- did voiceover work for one of my favorite cartoons of all time, and I'm honestly. I'm really surprised with the resurgence in westerns that nobody has brought that back. Well, it's it's a hard sell, unfortunately. You know, and it, it sort of falls into that Green Lantern re- the territory where you'd have to really, really, really try and build up the public awareness of it. There's certain things. You were saying earlier one of the things that you did the you thought would be a great idea, and I agree with you actually. Is if 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 uh, Hanna Barbera and Warner Brothers were to do something with you know some of the old characters, I've got this. I have been wanting to do a revival of the Impossibles for like <laughs> ten years. I think that you could do the Impossible. You could do the Impossibles as a live action movie. Oh yeah, you know. You could do. I want to bring back. I want. You know what? You know who I really want to bring back more than anybody else. Who's that? Frank Frankenstein Jr. Yeah, Frankenstein Jr. Back then was Franken, dope. Yes, Frankenstein Jr. would be the bomb right now. Yes, I feel you. You could do Frankenstein Jr. You know, I, there's just there's there's so, you know, I there's so many things that I am uh, that I've been exposed to over the years that that have influenced everything. You know, when I worked at Sony, I can st- it was one of the best experiences. Even though I only worked there for four, four months, it was one of the best experiences of my life because I, I call it storyboard boot camp. Every, almost everything that I know about 
telling a story visually in comics. I either learned while those four months at Sony, or I learned from Keith Giffen. So, because when I was an intern at DC, when I was 17, Keith took pity on me. (laughs) (laughs) and would give me copies of his layouts for Justice League. And I, I studied these things and I, I scoured the pacing and how he framed each panel and, you know, how he left enough room in the story for the artists to interpret it their own way without deviating too much. So there was that. And then when I was at Sony, I, you know, when I was working on uh, Max Steel and on Starship Troopers, the way that we would do the, the storyboards, because they were computer uh, CGI shows, we didn't have to do what they call type boards. Um, I would do loose boards. And basically, loose boards were two-by-two two post-it notes, like eight two-by-two two post-it notes on a sheet of paper. Okay. And the reason, the reason why they did it that way was that you could do faster revisions on those than you could on just drawing traditional boards. And what they would do is after you had, did all the, the revisions and the director did his revisions and everything was finalized, they would tape the, uh, tape the, the post-its down to the paper, they would send it to the animatic room, and then they would make the animatic for the show and then they would send the animatic to the animators. So all, you're, all I was doing for eight hours a day for four months straight was storytelling. No, no tight drawing, just figuring out how to make the camera move and how to make the characters within the frame move. I, honestly, it was, I will never, ever, ever, I don't have a bad word to say about the time that I spent at Sony because it made me a, a much, much, much better storyteller. I think like all... All artists, no matter what medium they're in, whether it be, you know, being an artist, being a writer, a musician, whatever your craft is, you need that that boot camp in your life. Right. You know what I mean? You or, or you need that moment where you have to dig in so deep, not you know, you dig in so deep that you really you learn externally and internally. And and for you to get that from your experience at Sony, that, that's just amazing. That is really amazing. <laughs> Well, it, it it was, you know, I did. It's one of those things where I didn't realize it at the time, but I came to realize it after I left and at, after I started working, you know, doing comics full time again. And the thing about it was is that without me having to do, you know, tight boards, I it took ego out of the equation. Okay, you know, it it, it took my want of trying to lay down my stamp on something away from me to where I was just telling the story without any flourish, without thinking about style or without thinking about super tight penciling or anything, anything like that. It was just taken away. So that made, that made me stronger. All this material that you've done, all all this art that you've done over the years, what, in your opinion, is the one book? Even though, like you know, you say you, you've pulled, you know, you know, you've pulled ego out of the equation and stuff like that. What is the one book that you feel 
or one comic that you feel is your favorite out of all the books that you've done in your career to this point? Oh man, that's tough. (laughs) (laughs) That that's tough because there's a lot of stuff that I've done that I like for different reasons. What's that one book that just that you've done that just makes you so happy? And it doesn't have to have anything to do with like sales or anything. It's just that when you see that book, it just makes you smile. Oh, venture. All right. Venture number one. All right. Venture number one. And for a very, very particular reason, it's, it was my first real foray into doing creator own work. And even though it didn't work out the way that, either Jay or I had hoped that it would, but it was the, the style that I have now really started to gel when I started, when I was doing venture, because at that point before I had just gotten back to New York and I'd been freelancing, it was about the same time that I was doing GI Joe. And, you know, I, before the GI Joe stuff, I had kind of was trying to make sort of this transition to a, a more blockier, sort of style like something sort of in the vein of like Cully Ham or what Cully Hamner was doing at the time or what Brian Stelfreeze was doing at the time and you know I had a couple of editors who were like well you know because I had been working in like doing this sort of blocky style for about a year or so and I did that on like you know Martian Manhunter and a few noble causes and a few other things and then I they asked me to do an issue of Supergirl and uh, the Mike McAvenny who was the editor at the time was like well you know could you do it in like a, a smoother kind of <laughs> kind of line style yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like Wait, I just spent like the last year just trying to cultivate this other style. Okay, well, you know, and I did it. Um, And I was kind of, you know, by the time I got to G.I. Joe, it was kind of, again, I was making that sort of, that that same sort of transition with with G.I. Joe, where I was moving away from like the blockier style to doing more of a a cleaner line style again. And then, you know, when uh, Jay and I were putting Venture together, I was like, you know what, I need to do this in a way that I would want to see a comic book of this type. I, you know, I need to figure out what it is that I like visually as an artist, rather than trying to just fit into like a creative mold right. or try to find a style that I thought would sell better to uh, editors as opposed to finding something that works for me. So I needed to find something that works for me. So when I started doing venture, I really tried to soften things back up to a point where I could uh, use real people as models for some of the characters. Like in uh, venture number one, the the bank robber in venture number one is uh, Steve Ellis. (laughs) The, uh, <laughs> the artist of High Moon. Yeah, he's one of my best friends, and we've known each other forever, and he actually modeled for that. So, you know, and that was just sort of the point where I, I guess in the back of my head, I just decided, you know what, this is, this is me. You know, this is, this is my style. This is, I'm, I'm a naturalistic artist. This is the kind of work that... I want to see. And it's, I still keep that in mind to this day. I'll also like the fact that it had to do with a creator own book. Um, because that's something that 
that like I'm really you know really big on um, yeah and you know anybody that knows me I mean look I, I look I, I can talk about 80s properties and <laughs> you know an old school comics and cartoons so I'm blue in the face right but, like I'm all about people creating things you know cre- right. you know because the power of creation is a wonderful thing and I'll continue to go back to the era of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> because yo Eastman and Laird inspired a generation this is true this is very they, very true they inspired a generation and even and even like the 90s comics era the boom you know, like the boom bust era I know people continued will continue to always crap on 90s books but that was one of the biggest employment periods in comics and you got a lot of creativity in that era. Yes, you had a lot of copycats. This you, is true. You had a lot of copycats, but you also had a lot of creativity in that era. And you also had a lot of brothers and sisters that were employed during that era, too. This is very, very true. I, you know, you can't, honestly, you, you can't take anything away from, from what they did. You know, whether or not you, whether or not you like it is irrelevant, but. You know, like you were saying, you know, it opened up a lot of opportunities for for other people to go out and do creator own work. Right. Yes. You know, we don't. There's a lot of venues that we don't have anymore creatively. You know, there aren't that many outlets for new artists to break into Marvel or DC as there used to be. You know, you don't. I think Marvel has a new talent department, like a new talent, but DC doesn't really have a new talent department because it's it's very difficult. Uh, from what I've been told, it's very difficult for them to to convince the sales department that they can sell a book with a completely unheard of creator attached to it. Wow. That is crazy. It, you know, it, it's 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 a fact. You yeah. know, it's it's a fact of life. You yeah. know, unfortunately. Yeah, it, it, business. Yeah, it's when it comes down to it, it's a business. Yeah, it, it is. It, it's a business, and sometimes, even though you know, salespeople may, may not always be right. Um, it is a business, and sometimes they do have final say. This is true. I mean, there's there are times when you can defy expectations. I mean, that happens more often than people, you know, I think would care to admit. We have like we have hit it on like so many different spectrums on this recording. <laughs> got me all hype. Got me all hype, man. You brought up Howard Hawks. I I, I, I got a copy of um, Only Angels Have Wings. Uh, it's like you know, it's like one of my favorite old school movies. And um, he did another movie. It's like Bringing Up Baby, which which is another one of my favorites. So like old school Howard Hawks films. Yeah, um, love those films. And like you know, that's like from like the '30s. And um, both of those films, like those are the two Howard Hawks films, like I remember, I remember most. And like, I think he did the Mar- he did that Marilyn Monroe, Monroe movie, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Yeah, um, but there's, there's the big one for me, which which is the Big Sleep. Okay, see, which I, is, I, I've never seen that. You oh, you would love it. You would absolutely look Bogey and Bacall at the height of their power, man. Oh, words is, is Lauren Bacall's first movie. Is just you don't have like the, the the cadence of how they speak to each other. You they just you don't do that anymore in movies. You know the, there is a pacing and a rhythm to that movie that is absolutely brilliant. See, I got to peep that now. 
Yes, you do. I gotta, yes, you. I got to peep it. I wrote it down. I wrote it down. The big sleep. It's it's, it's Humphrey Bogart as Philip Marlowe. Oh, word, word. <laughs> oh, it's on there. <laughs> it's on there. Yeah, I'm gonna check that out. I'm gonna check that out. Yes, we done went Cisco and Ebert up in this piece. <laughs> yes. Um. Yo, did you ever, ever watch the old school? Well, actually, there's, there's can't really call it old school because there's only one animated series for it. The Star Trek animated series? Yes, I did. I did. It is a horrible, horrible, horrible experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it was Filmation. So I, I, No, but Filmation wasn't always that bad. Like, right. There's good Filmation and then there's shitty Filmation. No, no, I, yeah. and I agree. I agree. I agree because, listen, I'm one of the biggest Filmation backers on the face of this planet, you, you know, right. and, like, I'll stand behind them. Now, they, they, they did do some bullshit, okay? <laughs> Let, let's be real. They did do this some bullshit. True. You know, because they, they, they did what they had to do in order to get stuff done, in order to stay an, Amer- an American-based animation studio. Exactly. Ghostbusters, looking at you. Oh, uh, I don't want to talk about filmation <laughs> Ghostbusters. I don't want to talk about that because I don't, I don't, because before they did that cartoon, many, many, many years ago in the 70s, they had that live-action version. With, I, I, with, I've seen it. With Larry I, Storch? I, with, Larry, with Larry Storch and the, the guy who played the sergeant from F Troop. I forget his name. Oh, see, it hurts my heart. And the guy in the monkey suit. Yeah, man. It's, uh, it's bad. And see, and then when the real Ghostbusters cartoon came out and I saw the filmation was coming out with this Ghostbusters, I was like, you got to be shitting me. <laughs> there is no way I'm watching that. And like, it was funny because like in school, like there was like this one group of kids that like loved the filmation Ghostbusters. And then I was in the other group of kids that loved the like, you know, the real Ghostbusters. And boy, we used right. to just like just getting them nerd wars. And oh, like, man. and like, I was the only brother in the whole whole group of both posse's. So like, uh, like I was the only representative of my people. And so like, <laughs> so like, then my people they didn't like you know during that age because they thought they was too grown for cartoons. I'm like, and this was like right. the 80s. I'm like, we were probably right. like you know 11, 12 years old. Right. And then like, and these other brothers was like nerd. And you know, I'm like, how you gonna call me out? You know, can't you just like help me out? No, man, you nerd, man, nerd. <laughs> Son, you, you're not alone. I I was I was one of those kids. I was up at seven o'clock in the morning watching Mighty Orbots on ABC. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You did not just say that. I got that written down on a piece of paper right here. <laughs> I was going to talk to you about that. I got him on DVD. What? <laughs> oh, that is one of the tightest cartoons oh, ever made. Man. It is awesome. It is awesome. And they took it off the air because it said it was too violent. See, I heard that rumor. And I also heard the rumor they took it off because supposedly when Hanna-Barbera was making GoBots, uh, uh, when, when they were prepping for the GoBots cartoon, they right. supposedly put a cease and desist on the Mighty Orbots. Because like, I, I can believe that. Um, I can believe uh, you know, because of like either the the name was too close to GoBots or Bots or whatever, they they put a cease right. and desist on it. That, see, that was, but that's a big rumor. I never found out if that was true. That is one of the most beautifully put yes, together cartoons I've ever seen in my entire lifetime. And I now it was is that like a legit DVD box set or is that like a bootleg box set that you? Uh, hmm. Booty, 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 booty. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I ain't mad at you. I, 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 it's a, it's a good bootleg, <laughs> brother. I'm not mad at you, okay? I'm not for the simple fact that I have not seen that 
since it went off the air on, oh. on ABC because I sat there at my grandma's house and I and I can picture that scene like it was yesterday. I remember the carpet that I sat on in my grandma's mm. living in my grandma's living room watching that TV watching the final episode of Mighty Orbots because that show had a definitive ending. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. And and it still holds up actually. Cartoon. It's it still holds up. It really does, boy. And with all this technology we got nowadays, they can make a, a tight live action Mighty Orbots show. Yes, yes, they could. Yes, they could. Oh, you get. I don't, it. You I don't know. know if they would ever do it. No, but. no, no, no. They wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. Somebody would screw it up. Somebody, <laughs> somebody would screw it up, man. You see, you just do not understand the wavelength we are on right now. I'm not playing. I had that written down on a piece of paper right here. <laughs> I had three things. I had the Star Trek filmation, uh, right. filmation series, and I had Jason the Star Command and Mighty no! Robots. No, yes. no, 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 no. Yes. Oh. <laughs> you do not understand my love oh. for Jason the Star Command. Oh. I got that. I got that. I, um, they had um, the people for like a couple, many years ago, um, mm-hmm. BCI Eclipse, which uh, folded, and now somebody else has the rights to all the filmation stuff. BCI Eclipse put out a box set. It's called the Sci-Fi Box Set. It's the complete Jason the Star Command series, uh, the complete Space Academy series, and the complete Arc Uh, 2 series. I loved Arc 2. Oh, my God. I love that show so much. (laughs) You don't don't understand. I got this box set, brand new, shrink-wrapped, from Half Price Books for $10. And Jason the Star Command Look man it's Live action filmation stuff is corny But I'm telling you something I had so much fun watching this And Jason the Star Command ain't nothing but a poor man's Han Solo Without a blaster (laughs) But he did He he did have Scotty though Yeah he had had Scotty for one season And then Paramount called him up And was like yo we making a Star Trek movie And James Doohan was like how much Bye, and left, and left. Jason Star Command, uh, but man, Jason Star Command was my show. You you got you have to understand, man. Like that entire like CBS block back in like what was that seventy seven, seventy eight, something like that. Yeah, yeah. That entire block, like Tarzan and the Super Seven, and then you know Jason Star Command. <laughs> man, they was killing it, man. <laughs> And that's when filmation was just flat out killing it. Like I said, they would have them hits and misses, but like when they put a hit together, man, uh, they had, filmation had cocaine money. That's how they got that stuff done. <laughs> they, 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 uh, they, they did three seasons of Shazam. I mean, come on, you yeah, did, man. <laughs> and Shazam got fatter and fatter each season. Yes, yes, he did. You know, you got less Tremaine riding around in a in a souped up RB with a 15 year old boy and nobody said a goddamn thing <laughs> exactly exactly you got, a, you got some some little toe headed white boy calling some old man mentor and riding around in his van mm-hmm. <laughs> from town to town town to town you tell, you tell me they ain't on the run from the law <laughs> exactly and every week he's got to he's got to save a boy from an electric plant or something like that or, or, or a mountain lion <laughs> or a mountain lion come on man I used to watch this shit every week too. (laughs) 
Because like that was when it was even off the air. They just had syndicate. They would just syndicate, and I would just sit there yeah. and watch it. I'm like, yes, I'm going to watch this. Yes. Oh, but that's what you did as a kid. You know, especially yeah. if you're, you know, I mean, I'm I'm a superhero head from jump. You know, I you know I was watching when I was like four years old. Um, before my parents got divorced, my dad and I would sit down and we would watch The Adventures of Superman on Channel 11 on the WPIX mm-hmm. every afternoon. And then Batman would come on, the Adam West Batman would come on. And then, you know, Saturday morning you had, you know, Shazam. And then you had, what, what else was, was flopping or like superhero was? Like fl- there was a ISIS. Of- Wasn't there also an ISIS series? Yes, well? there, was an I- there was an ISIS series. It actually, like the third season of Shazam, they introduced ISIS. And ISIS ran for one season. And I recently saw an episode, like, uh, an episode of it, and the, the the woman who played Isis was an actress named Joanna Cameron, mm-hmm. and I used the term actress very very loosely because she was awful. Oh, like I, you know, she, but you know, she she kind of looked like Linda Carter, so you kind of gave her a pass. Uh-huh. <laughs> 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 70s, 70s, 70s. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's that's what I did. You know, yeah. that's that's that was my thing. You know, I would watch the six million dollar man. I would watch the bionic woman. I would, you know, there, there was this this awful Sunday night movie that that came on back in the day. And it was about this this paraplegic who developed a, a robot suit and I forget I still I can't even wait, remember wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute you're not talking about Mantis are you no 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 this is before this is before okay. Mantis okay okay this is way before Mantis because the, the thing about the suit is it was inflatable oh no <laughs> uh. and I saw and I, I saw this once. I saw I saw this movie once, and it stayed in my head for years. And I couldn't remember, you know, what the deal was. If it was an actual series, like nobody, because it was a, a TV movie, nobody could tell me anything about it. And then you know, some, finally, somebody had a clip of it on YouTube, and you're just you're just sitting there, like, man, I was stupid. <laughs> I, I watched anything that you remotely had. This thing moved, this, this robot soup moved at, you know, two miles an hour. It, it was heavy breathing like Darth Vader, you know, on, on an iron lung. <laughs> but, you know, that was the stuff that, you know, when you're a kid and you're into superheroes, that's the, the stuff that I was watching. And that was the stuff I think that did more damage to my brain than anything else because, you know, I, I watched all three seasons of The Greatest American Hero and bought it on DVD. <laughs> not a great show. No, no, not at all. Not, not but, see, but as a kid, as a kid, we thought as it was exactly. great because... Exactly. He had a cape and a, a costume cape. and he was awesome. Yeah. Even though he kept crashing. Yeah. <laughs> but but we accepted it, though. You, you know what this, I mean? We accepted this in the 70s. We accepted these types of shows in the 80s. Like, the 70s and the 80s was really big for sci-fi shows um, with bad budgets and bad special effects, but we accepted them. This is true. And then in the 90s, there was this, uh, you know, revival 
of sci-fi and fantasy shows, you know, Xena, Hercules, uh, um, let's see, the Gene Roddenberry show with Kevin Sorbo, uh, Andromeda. Um, Andromeda, or even before Andromeda, you had a Earth Final Conflict. Yes. Or, or, or I could, I could, I could go really deep, and you could go like the the syndicated, like really bad syndicated shows, like mm-hmm. Super Force. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> now you know we're gonna have to have a little talk. Because, um, <laughs> because listen, I know Super Force is bad. Okay, I I can I can accept that Super Force is bad, right. but but when that show came out, you couldn't tell me nothing this because is true. because well, I watched again, it again. I I sat and me being the Superman fan that I am, I watched Superboy every weekend. <sighs> I did not miss a single episode of Superboy. There were some bad episodes in that show, man. Oh, there were some shit episodes. And you know what? I, I'll tell you a real quick funny story. But, uh, and this is really funny. Okay, so I'm, you know, Superboy, you know, this came out, this is 89. I'm doing my internship at DC. I'm, I basically spent the afternoons hanging out with Andy Helfer and Kevin Dooley, who were the editors on Justice League, and hanging out with Keith Giffen and, and uh, J.M. Dematis. So... One day I go into their office and they're all, you know, hanging around and talking. And Carlin's in there. My Carlin's in there too. And they start talking about Superboy. And they started talking about the episode with Metallo, the, the first episode of Metallo. And, and Andy's like, So you, you watch Superboy? He's like, Yeah, I watch it every week. He's like, Well, what do you think? It's like, Yeah, I like it. He's like, Did you see the episode that came on this week? Oh, I was like, Oh, what? The one with Metallo? That's eh, okay. You know, I don't know. I didn't like the actors. I thought they, they got this fat guy to play Metallo. It didn't make any sense. It was kind of stupid. And Andy looks at me deadpan and just goes, You know, I wrote that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Oh. <laughs> and Carl, Mike, because Mike co wrote that episode, and Carl was just laughing his ass off. Because, like, the look on my face was just abject horror. <laughs> just like, oh my God, please don't fire me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Before we end, before we end, we should let people know that there, there, that there is a future Jamal Eigel work out there yes. for the masses coming very soon. Yes, um, yes. Can you tell the people about your new project that you're working on? Yes, I am. Wor- I'm uh, currently penciling a. F- I'm penciling and I'm doing the covers actually. Also, I'm doing a. We're we're bringing back the Ray. For uh, DC Comics, it's I'm penciling and it's being written by Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray, and it is absolutely ape shit. It, <laughs> it, it is it is the 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 first issue alone just has him fighting giant telepathic jellyfish, flying telepathic jellyfish over the streets of san diego oh i'm sold that's all you had to say <laughs> i love that craziness so so yeah so we're introduced it's a brand new character it's a um 
His name is Lucian Gates. He's a 22-year-old lifeguard from San Diego. His, you know, his girlfriend is a movie publicist. His best friend, Darius, and uh, lifeguard partner is the son of a hip-hop mogul. Lucian's parents are hippies, old-school surfer hippies. <laughs> and uh, he, gets, he gets hit by this, this uh, experimental light beam and instantly develops these light-based superpowers. Nice. So it's it's I I don't want to get too much into it because there's there's uh there's a lot of stuff attached to it. Oh no 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 no. That's cool. That is it's you know if I even begin to go into it it you first you say no nah, bullshit you're not gonna do that <laughs> <laughs> but but in a fun way <laughs> but it is it's fun it is I'm having so much fun I'm actually like ten pages into issue two already and it doesn't even come out till December so oh, awesome yeah so we we are really far ahead and uh, and and it's it's good it's just it's good fun work and it's a four issue miniseries and uh, after that we'll see we'll see what happens i haven't had any any other conversations with dc about future work just yet so cool man well listen we are definitely rooting for you and we are definitely rooting for the ray and um i know it's going to be a successful book and you know look man i i'm not buying a lot of books right now but you better damn believe that one will be bought Oh, thanks, Sean. Hey, thanks, man. Look, I appreciate that. Hey, look, I really do. Times is hard. I mean, like, look, my money, I know. my money can go to either one, two places, either researching for a bootleg copy of the Mighty Orbots box set <laughs> or or a copy of the Ray. So you got my money for the Ray. Thanks, man. <laughs> and, um, and thank you. Um, so much for uh, you know for coming on the PKD Black Box, man. This has been a long time coming. I really can't say thanks enough, man. Oh, thank no, thank you for for having me. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. You know, I love talking to you anyway. So it, it's been really, really cool, man. Thanks for having me on. Hey, you're welcome, brother. All right. And that concludes this week's PKD Black Box. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the HHWLOD Podcast Network and is available at hhwlod.com and is also available via iTunes. And you can still go to pkdmedia.com to get our podcast, check out our form, and read comics like Mercury and the Murd, Agents of Cult, and Luke Foster's The Gang from the Store for free. If you're on iTunes or our forum board, feel free to leave us a comment or you can email us at blackbox at pkdmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. Until then, dream big and hustle hard. Like I'm starting to feel like the Tony Randall of podcasting. Like, like I've got to be on everybody's show at some point. <laughs> hey, man, you you could set like a Guinness World Record or something like oh, that. Oh, probably, you probably. Know, you know, like you know, brother. You know, in the comics industry, on the most podcast ever, you could break Daryl Taylor's record. No, nah, nobody could break Daryl. Nobody could break Daryl's record. Uh, that's, uh, that's just done. That's uh, just, uh, he's, he's got me laughed. <laughs> <laughs> he's got all of us laughed. <laughs>
Uh, and, and, and if if this and if this makes on if this makes on the be real, Daryl, I'm just playing with you. I, I love know, you. I know. But I <laughs> I think if you add up all of Daryl's podcast appearances, I think he he's got more podcast appearances than every episode of Comic Geek Speak at this point. I can see that. I I, I wouldn't be surprised. Yes, because Comic Book Road shows up to like 160 episodes, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Like he just keeps moving. I don't know. I'm I, like he. I just, I'm serious. I mean, I talk about this all the time, but I don't understand how the brother does it. He has like 15 shows, and he's got people working for him. He's got people. He's got people. Plus, he's got a full time job. He still works at the library. Yeah. Between him and like him saying that you got like a rocket ship, a yacht, oh, and man. like all these special things. I'm like, how come I ain't been on a yacht yet? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, next time, it's you and me on the yacht. We'll just cruise New York Harbor or something, okay. man. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I'll bring the crystal if you want me to. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, if, if that gets me on the yacht, I, you know, I'll bring the crystal or, you know. Uh, oh, it was the funniest thing because I bumped it to him and Mike and the and uh, some of the... Uh, wait, no, there was two instances because I bumped it to him, Umar, and Maui, and uh, and Simba. Uh, walking, just walking down the street, like first day of the con, and then him and Mike came by the table a couple of times at the show, and every like every time I turned around, it just got worse. I had jetpack, I had an army of ninjas. I was, I was running drugs like Pablo Escobar. Uh, <laughs> never get Daryl started on if, uh, if you ever tell him, if you ever ask him about the cartel. The cartel. He will. Oh. He will start to tell the story of when he was in kindergarten, how he had his own cartel selling pixie sticks, and he was making profit oh. off the kids. Oh. He was chopping up the pixie stick dust like cocaine, oh. and he was distributing it to the kids in little Ziploc bags. <laughs> don't ever, don't ever get cornered. Oh. It, don't ever get cornered oh. at a show because he will start oh. talking to you about that. Oh my god. 